The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 231. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a time lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart, Chief. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding! Position us. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Hello, I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Ta-da! She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the second Doctor story, The Ice Warriors. And joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Folks, remember to, uh, if you can, please take a moment Right now, pause the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and write a review of for the the podcast, a nice five-star review. The reason we ask that is it helps us connect with more listeners. It pushes us up in the algorithms and all the machine learning nonsense and gives us that that push that puts us in front of more folks who might be interested in finding a Doctor Who podcast. And uh, we really do appreciate that. And of course, when you share the podcast with your friends, that really helps us grow our community of listeners. So we are talking this time about this second Doctor story from the fifth season of Doctor Who. It's the second Doctor's, I think, second season. I, I didn't uh, double-check that ahead of time. But he is yeah. continuing his his journeys with Victoria and Jamie. So, Jimmy, could you give us a recap of what this six-part uh, story is about? Yeah, so The Ice Warriors takes place in the future. It's unclear whether it's the year 3000 or the year 5000. There is different evidence that points different ways on that, but it's definitely the future. And there's a new ice age that Earth is in the grip of and is trying to fight. And to fight it, they've established these stations around the world to try to control the glaciers with devices called ionizers that generate heat. And we're at the Britannicus station. So we're in British territory. The society has evolved so that they're very dependent on computers for making decisions. And if you rebel against computer rule, you're likely to get sent to re-education camps in Africa. But there are people who reject computer rule and kind of live on the fringes of society. At Britannicus Base, there is a big glacier that is menacing the station. And within the glacier, it turns out there is a frozen ship from Mars containing a number of ice warriors, and they've been frozen there ever since the last Ice Age, so thousands and thousands of years. But just like in the movie The Thing from Another World that inspired this from 1951, they find one of the ice warriors, dig him out of the ice, and he gets accidentally unthawed and returned to life. He then wants to wake up all of his buddies so they can decide, do we want to go back to Mars or do we want to take over this planet? That leads to a conflict with the humans at Britannica Space. The Doctor, Jamie, and Victoria get involved. There's lots of back and forth, people getting captured and escaped and recaptured. It comes down to a confrontation 
between the people on the base who have to decide, because their computers are incapable of advising them in this situation, do, what are we going to do? Do we use our ionizer at full power and melt the glacier and the spaceship? Or do we not do that because there's a risk that the Martian spaceship, which has an ion drive, will explode if we use our ionizer at full power? And they eventually decide to use it, and it results in only a small explosion, not a catastrophic one, and so the day is saved. Excellent. Uh, I have to say the the, uh, the unfreezing the warrior reminded me of the Sunday Night Live skit, the uh, unfrozen caveman lawyer. I don't know if you guys oh, ever yeah. saw that. No. <laughs> that, was, that was a great skit. <laughs> so this is the first appearance of the Ice Warriors in Doctor Who. They mm-hmm. show up again later, including in New Who, right? We have yes, we've done yeah, that one more than once. Okay, and in- they're 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 a popular villain, and I can see why they are cool. In that, okay, you've got these <laughs> menacing reptilian things. I'm not in personally. I'm not entirely happy with every aspect of their design. Now they're meant, and they established this right from the beginning. They're meant to be in armor, right? And you couldn't always tell that in this era of black and white television. What is that supposed to be like? A reptilian scales, or is that armor? They make it clear it's armor because they refer to it having electrical connections. Right. But the armor is a little goofy in some aspects of its design. They have these bulbous-looking hips that are ridiculous. (laughs) But even worse, their hands are basically two claw pinchers that look like something on a, on a bad children's toy. That Lego you like. minifigs. It's totally a Lego yeah. minifig yeah. hand. <laughs> yeah. I'm f- intimately familiar with Lego minifigs, let me tell you. You know, it's, it is interesting the, to see these. One of the aspects of the, that, of the portrayal I, I didn't like was the voices. It was very hard to understand hmm. them. And in this era in Doctor Who, they keep coming up with these, these uh, creatures these aliens with these really weird way of speaking that makes it really hard to understand them. And these guys, they kind of whis- horse whisper with very sibilant S's. And it was kind of, uh, kind of, I thought I had to read the transcript from online mm. while mm. I was watching it in order to get everything that was going on. But uh, otherwise I, I think the design for the time wasn't bad, but except for the, the, the hand bit that you mentioned, Jimmy, that was kind of awkward too. Well, and, and the BBC was obviously very enamored with the, the latest technologies and some of the distortion effects that they could do with sound, you know, because they could do yeah. that live as they were. It's so like the computer. The computer had a distortion effect that had absolutely no purpose other than to say, this is a computer. This isn't a human <laughs> being speaking. Right. You know, and so they, they did that with a lot of their creatures where they could do these effects on the fly. Again, on the fly, yeah. they didn't have to be added in post. You know, it's kind of interesting when you compare that to, say, like a, a contemporary show, Star Trek, which also had a, a speaking computer, which had a robotic voice, but was much more natural than than the uh, computer in this one. So that 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 was a that's an interesting compa- uh, contrast mm-hmm. that they have. But by the way, while we're speaking about visual design, mm-hmm. the humans in the future have uh, the well, the setting is interesting because we yep. have this snowscape. Right. for that's surrounding the Britannica space. And I thought they did a really good job with the snowscape, given the fact that it's all sets. Mm-hmm. You know, they were faking avalanches and collapses, and they had this maze-like set of snow corridors that people would go through. And I thought that was all very well done. 
the Britannica space itself is fascinating because they chose to make up the inside, even though they put some mechanical devices in different rooms, like they had a computer room. It was basically an old Victorian house, yeah. and it was furnished like an old Victorian house, except for the computer room and the medical bay. And they they hung a lantern on that because when they come in, Victoria says it's just like my old home, mm-hmm. right? And and it's like, yeah, these were the props we had available. <laughs> and <laughs> right. So so uh, so that's visually interesting design, but also the humans. Now they have these renegades that are sometimes called loyalists. I'm not sure loyalists to what. Gavengers, I think is another scavengers. Yeah. yeah, and they're just wearing typical caveman furs for the mm-hmm. most part, but the. The costumes for the people who work at Britannica Space are very interesting. They're basically white—now, this is all black and white, so you can't tell for sure—but they're basically white jumpsuits with unusual, blobby, psychedelic black designs on them. Mm-hmm. Very and Rorschach. they do—yeah, <laughs> they, do, they do look very futuristic, and they're kind of—most of the time, they're asymmetrical. Uh-huh designs but they do look futuristic effectively also they wear the women in the computer room frequently are seen wearing different kinds of headpieces that are made of transparent plastic yeah and sometimes it it sometimes they look kind of like futuristic glasses of some sort you know going around their eye level but other times it's like something that folds, it goes over the back of their head and then over the top of the head and curls down over their eyes, and it's just a single sheet. And they only put it on when they're, like, working on the reactor, but they're not, they're, they're not directly looking into a reactor core, so it's not shielding their eyes. They're just wearing it as they're using a computer terminal or machine terminal yeah. of some kind. And so I think it must be some kind of, like, augmented reality heads-up display that they're wearing. Yeah, yes. That's what I was thinking, the future version of Google Glass or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, very, although yeah. I don't know if the if the show producers would have even thought of why they're wearing these futuristic headpieces, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. That's, the, that's the best I can make out of why they might be. When you're working, wear this. Uh, yeah. So one of the, th- uh, the things about this era of Doctor Who is there's a lot of missing Doctor Who, a lot of episodes, individual episodes or whole stories, sadly, that are missing from the archives. But so this one, they had the the films of, and it was all film at that point, I think, of episodes one, four, five, and six. But two and three were missing. But they've they since recreated them in animation, like they've done before. I think two thousand thirteen. Animated them. Yep. <laughs> yes, <laughs> animated. Uh, reanimated unfrozen caveman ice warriors no, yeah. <laughs> um, so they uh they they released them on dvd in 2013 i think it was so i wanted to check like so uh, did you watch the reanim the uh animated version uh father cory or did you listen to the audio i i did watch it through means that might not be the bbc's approval shall we say but yes i did <laughs> i did did watch all of it and, and i will say you know it is nice because the second Doctor, so few of his episodes exist, you know, the original airing or the original episodes, it is nice when you can actually watch the video of it versus the animation. The animation is great because we get to see the story, but it's it, there's so much that Patrick Troughton brings to that character that you miss in the animation. Right. I agree. Jimmy? I was, after much searching, able to finally find my DVD, and so I watched it on DVD, and I watched it with the subtitles on, which helped me 
with the uh, <laughs> with the hissing from the Ice Warriors. So good, good. Yeah, I watched the I watched it as well. The the uh, the animated versions, and I agree with you, Father Corey. I like the the animation is very good. I have to say, yes. I mean, it's they do a Excellent. really good job, uh, especially of it's, matching. Yeah, and especially the backgrounds. Now, the the characters, mm-hmm. the human characters. I mean, you know, it's not as Only good so much as it you could do. be. Yeah, yeah, but uh, the backgrounds are sometimes really marvelous. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so, and then of course having the uh, the 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 restored vi- uh, film on video that was uh, that was really great. So it, was, it is it was really nice to watch it in that way. I, I, another thing I wanted to point out was this is a yet another setting of a story set in a frozen environment. Like they, they we had just come off of the uh, the Himalayas in the previous story, the Abominable Snowmen, and now we're once again in a frozen. And I think mm-hmm. even before that, Tomb and the Cybermen was before the Bottle of Snowmen. Mm-hmm. And that was also a, a kind of supposed to be a frozen, cold environment. It's kind of interesting that they've decided to go with that theme this season. And they hung lantern on it because as soon as the TARDIS shows up and falls over, that was yeah, awesome. so <laughs> J- Jamie and Victoria and the Doctor had to have to climb out of the TARDIS from this fallen over position. Jamie is like, oh, snow, not again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, after this one, the next in line, you'll be happy to know, does not involve snow. Oh, good. <laughs> it's the the enemy of the world, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorites, because Patrick Troughton gets to play a double role, where yep. he's Ooh. both the doctor and the would-be future Hitler of the year 2018. Oh, my. And, yeah, and... <laughs> But uh, but I was I watched the first episode last night after just for fun and Jamie and Victoria are both calling back things that they had just encountered with the Ice Warriors. Uh, awesome! You know it's fun to see to see these uh, companions who are both of them from before the 20th century. So yeah, so much of the technology is unfamiliar and new and has to be explained, which is I think it kind of is fulfilling the mission, the original mission of Doctor Who, which was to be educational and sort of sciency educational for for the audience and so the doctor gets to explain stuff to them and thus to the young audience presumably uh, so i i did i think that is effective in these yeah. episodes i like although, victoria too I, I i think she's a good companion i was gonna say although some of the science is kind of weak in this one but we'll talk about that in a little bit yes Go we'll ahead. get to that in just a second <laughs> yeah. well i did like how the doctor notes victoria has a classical education for her time yep Although classical isn't really the right word, but she knows about science because her dad was a scientist. Mm-hmm. And so when the doctor has, has made ammonium sulfide using a chemical dispenser that has a rotary dial on it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I just love that rotary dial to dial up the chemical compound you want. But he's made ammonium, ammonium sulfide, and she knows exactly what that is. She's like, that's just a stink bomb. And, and she's right. That is what <laughs> ammonium sulfide is, stink <laughs> right. bomb. And he's going, yes, but it's a harmless, poisonous, mild, poisonous gas that's harmless to human, but could be deadly to Martians. Right, right. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting that uh, he he uses that also at one point as a sort of smelling salts for someone who's been uh, knocked out. I think it was Clint who'd been knocked out. He uses it to wake him up. Or it might have been Penley. I yeah, forget which one. It's, it, it's Penley. So we, we might want to mention the characters, right. the humans who are here. So you've got Leader Clint, who's in charge of the station. And he comes to trust the doctor pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's initially skeptical because the doctor is this intruder with no authorization and doesn't look right. He's not wearing one of the weird jumpsuits. 
He thinks he's he and Jamie and Victoria are scavengers, and they're ready to ship him off to Africa until the doctor proves his usefulness. But uh, he is surprisingly sympathetic, even though mm-hmm. he's like almost incapable of doing anything without the computer agreeing. Right. Then there are a number of women who are running the controls and stuff. There are a few guys. The other major characters, though, are this guy named Penley, who is a former scientist at Britannica space who decided he was sick of his job and being told what to do by computers and has gone native. And so he he's left the base six weeks ago and tagged up with a guy named Store, who is definitely one of the one of the scavengers, although he calls himself a loyalist. And Store is very anti science. Mm-hmm. He he mm-hmm. thinks science is ruining stuff and he he wants so he's basically a future hippie. <laughs> he he's he's got this back to the snow movement and he's he's he's, he's living in this uh former muse former plant museum that he's doing I guess hydroponic gardening in and then hunting to survive. Right. Uh and he's Scottish which is uh, comes across yes. and and, and, and it helps him bond with Jamie a little bit. Yeah. And that, that's yeah, the issue he, with the loyalist is you know cuz Jamie was a Scottish loyalist back in the day right. and so now they've got this connection. Yeah. Except I think given that it's the year 5000 according to the talons of Wing Chiang when the next ice age occurs um loyalist I'm sure means something completely different. Uh, yes. To, to <laughs> sure. After four, than it does to Jamie. Almost 3500 years, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. In 3500 years Scotsmen will still be fighting for independence. <laughs> <laughs> They'll still want to By, throw off the British the crown. Yeah. By the way, if uh if if Store's voice sounds familiar to you, it's because we've heard it before. He is played by an actor who also plays the character Angus McRanald who was the landlord of the tavern who had second sight in Terror of the Zygons. Oh, right, which is a fourth Doctor story. Yes. Okay, yeah. so he's and as you'd expect, he dies in both stories. Yep. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, there's, uh, there's another, another uh, character, Penley. He's played by Peter Solis. He was the voice of Wallace and Wallace and Gromit. Oh, wow. That so that's is... what he's best known for, at least today. Um, yeah, wow! And then, everything is no old is new again. Uh, as we always say, every British actor shows up in Doctor Who at some point. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, Jimmy, you mentioned you know with with Clint that he was you know somewhat reasonable. I or you know these you somewhat sympathetic. You know, I, I wrote I was writing down as it's like wow, he's actually reasonable for a bureaucrat and not a crazy scientist who's set out to derail everything. Yeah. Well, well, in in fact, even though they disagree, Penley and Clint are both reasonable people, and they by the end of the episode, they basically reconciled. Exactly. Right. Yeah, Clint is a classic sort of middle manager type who's very concerned with not making a mistake or that his superiors uh, appreciate him, and he's, he comes across as almost you know, spineless and bureaucratic. At one point, he, he throws it in Penley's face, like, I, I may be a, a physical coward, but you're a... Uh, I think a moral coward or something like that. The, the, the back and forth because of Penley's refusal. P- Penley's principle of, of being, of, you know, personal freedom against the computers is putting the world in danger from Clint's point of view because it means the project might fail and the glaciers will advance and destroy civilization. And uh, so the, it's an interesting. No, there's no one here is clearly completely in the wrong nor completely right, and that's an interesting mm-hmm. complexity. 
Yeah, though the the episode sympathies are clearly with Penley over Clint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Especially as we get to the climax, the computer proves to be a failure in right. its ability to give directions in all circumstances. And so we have a very strong humans must be their own masters, not computers theme, which was very common in science fiction at the time. Also, right. they don't point it out, but notice it apparently was the computers that got them into the new Ice Age because they mm-hmm. tell us how it started. Yep. In order to in order to feed everybody, so here we have 60s overpopulation worries. Mm-hmm. In order to feed everybody, they shifted from raising plants to making synthetic like food in labs. And that meant the number of plants on Earth plummeted, and so they weren't contributing CO2 to the atmosphere, and that caused Earth to leak more heat into space. So you have global cooling because of (laughs) not enough greenhouse gas emissions. And and that was apparently all done under the auspices of the computers. I love the fact that the, the the solution to the problem is to create greenhouse gases, like to create carbon dioxide. This is this yep. is the problem. We we don't have enough carbon dioxide into a twenty first century audience. This sounds <laughs> very strange to, to this this uh, problem that they're having. Uh, and, and, yes. and of course the problem with this is it would be the exact opposite problem. Plants right. remove carbon dioxide. Yes. And and provide oxygen. So oxygen. the problem should be we don't. There isn't enough oxygen. Not that there isn't enough carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And this is where we talk about the bad science in this episode. Is the one part of it of no plants <laughs> are beneficial for taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and producing oxygen. Right. Not the other way around. We produce carbon dioxide by the fact there are no plants, but lots of humans. Because they said that humans had basically populated the entire Earth. Every physical place where a plant could grow, there were people living. Except the forest that Penley drags uh, Jamie through yeah. with a bear. Because is. it's a glacier. Because <laughs> right. it's part where of a glacier now. Footage, where the stock footage of the bear lives. Yes, yep. that's right. And the uh, the footprints of the wolves that we never see. Uh, you know, it's uh, one of the other things you mentioned, Jimmy, was the artificial food. And that's another trope from the 60s and 50s. This idea that uh, we were going to, as as a society, perfect food by, through artificial means. I mean, this was the age of canned foods, frozen foods. TV dinners, the best food Vitamin was the food. pills. Right, right. The best food was, formula. was the food that was going to be packaged for us. Processed food was better than natural food, which is, again, another thing to a 21st century audience is very strange. Like the Star Trek's <laughs> idealized, uh, again, I bring up Star Trek again because these were contemporaneous, that was the those little cubes, those colored cubes mm-hmm. of food that there was that was mealtime uh, on the Enterprise. And it's this very interesting ideas that we're encountering in these stories that kind of tell us it's when we look at like modern or contemporary to us, science fiction, the ideas that it portrays, which not really telling us about the future. It's telling us about who we are in the time that the show is created. And I, I find that's one of the reasons why I like watching these older science fiction shows is because they tell us something about the time that they were made, if not the future. So I, I really appreciate that. Oh yeah, all I can say is that synthetic food sounds really, really boring because it's like, <laughs> yes, you get all the nutrients you need, but like, what's what was it taste? I mean, we don't eat just for nutrients; we eat because we enjoy it as well. You know, many of us do, anyways. I can't say yeah. everybody does, but I know for myself, you know, you give me the choice between a, a nutrient pack that has all the nutrients of a good steak, rare steak, 
or the actual rare steak. Yeah, I'm going oh, yeah. for the steak. Yes. I'm going to go for the steak every day and not even think twice. Well, I'll take the nutrient pack because I don't like things rare. <laughs> <laughs> well, Make I, it well know, done and I'll well, take we, the steak. I was going to say, we could throw it on the grill a little longer for you, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting that there is a spiritual component to to food uh, We, t- you know, from a Catholic point of view. And, and that food is more than just fuel. It's uh, It's a way of of communion, of unity, bringing people together, mm-hmm. but also experiencing the goodness of creation. And again, it's an interesting idea when we wa- look at the world that is portrayed in this story is it's very mechanized, it's very cold, literally and figuratively, you know, spiritually, if it comes across as cold because it's run, you know, on the principles of computers. And and we see Stores and Penley enjoying a tomato and it's so good and they and it's this wow, uh, t- uh, you know, Eating a, a, a tomato is an amazing experience, and I, I, I find that they, they did a pretty good job of showing that difference. Mm-hmm. One thing, by the way, another interesting little thing that just came back to mind, Penley, or not Penley, um, Leader Clint, has a, an unusual affectation that I don't know if it was written in the script or not, but he limps. He's got some mm-hmm. kind of a limp, and so he's yeah. got a walking stick that he uses. But his walking stick is like transparent plastic, yeah. So it's it's kind of it's kind of neat looking, and even in the animated part, you can see through his transparent walking stick, right? Yeah, I wonder if that's the actor, or maybe the actor even had a had a an accident beforehand, and they had to kind of add it in. Uh, that I didn't see anywhere where it explain. You know, I couldn't find any sources to explain that. Um, it's yeah. an interesting affectation to add in. By the way, uh, Victoria in this is quite spunky. She's definitely, I mean, she she gets in trouble just like Jamie does, mm-hmm. but she, and she does do a little bit of screaming, but it's mostly screaming for help rather than just screaming in terror. It's like when she's at one point, she's trapped in a snow slide and a dead ice warrior has her wrist in, a, in his hand clamp. And she can't get away. And even though it's risking causing further snow slides, she's calling out for people to come get her. But she she is quite spunky in this. She functions on her own. She goes mm-hmm. and, and does stuff. She takes care of herself. And she makes a point to Jamie. She does not like these immodest future fashions. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Although Jamie's quite enamored of uh, the, uh, the, the jumpsuits oh, yeah, that, uh, that the... Uh, and uh, yeah, I have to say they are quite flattering on the uh, on the female well, yeah. actresses. <laughs> they, they don't they don't show any skin, but they no. are very form fitting. They are. basically <laughs> below the knees. Yeah, I mean, I I, 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 did, I I laughed at the the scene where the doctor had her fake cry. That was that was yes. actually quite humorous. Where she's like just bawling. What do you mean, doctor? And it starts bawling again as he's responding. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, there's a. Uh, there is uh, several bits of back and forth as the uh, the, the plot t- goes back and forth uh, between the the various elements that Jimmy explained before. The the computer that runs everything they, they call it the world computer, uh, and in the end, it's too logical. It can't gamble. It can't take risks. It can't it, it, it because the two possibilities that they present to it are possible ways so that it would destroy itself if it took the action. Mm-hmm. Whether it would. If it shot, if they if they use the ionizer on the alien ship, it could explode and in a nuclear explosion, it would destroy the computer, or they would do nothing and the glacier will overrun the base and again destroy the computer. And so it it just says do nothing, it waits, and and it 
it talks about like, oh, it has to serve the whole community, and therefore our sacrifice is nothing. This is the future equivalent of a spinning beach ball. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but please wait, still processing. And it's an interesting question. As we turn over more and more of our society's functions to AI, machine learning, it brings the question is how do we program computers to make decisions about things? And one of the, you know, programming acceptable risk. And one mm-hmm. of the things that people bring up with uh, these days are like uh, autonomous vehicles, cars that drive themselves. How does a car decide, you know, the trolley problem? You know, for example, yep. if there's someone in the street, does it stop and cause a greater accident? Does it run over the person? These are moral questions that have to be programmed into a computer. Some engineer, some programmer has to decide how it's going to decide. So I think it's interesting that even back then that this was a, a, a question that was coming up for, well, they, for people. They even talk about the pro, the computer being programmed for self-survival, self-preservation, Right. where that was the reason why it got in this, this processing lock, if you will, because it didn't want to make a choice that would, could, like you said, could lead to its own destruction. But talking about the trolley problem, it, you know, maybe it could be like the uh, four-year-old kid you see, uh, that's, you, see, you can see on the YouTube meme where he takes, you know, he's got the three on one side and one on the other, and he takes the one to the other side and then runs all over, over all four. <laughs> that's right. You the know. trolley problem is I can't run all of, over all of them. <laughs> exactly. A four-year-old, yes. <laughs> yeah. In the Adams family. Yes, exactly. that's right. That's right. So that, that was the one thing that I was thinking of. Uh, Father Corey, do you have any other thoughts on this episode? Um, everything Sonic. Uh, it, yeah. you know, of course, the the the, the uh, ice warriors have a sonic blaster that they use to melt the ice, and then they've got a sonic gun that they use to blast the station. Uh, it's kind of funny how again, this is one of these times where everything's sonic, you know, and mm-hmm. so it sound solves everything, including the solution to getting the ice warriors out of the station is to blast them at a certain frequency, frequency seven, yep. to that just affects the ice warriors worse than it does the humans. Very good. Very, yes, everything is sonic. Jimmy, how about you? So this is a base under siege story, which uh, which is common in Doctor Who and was especially common during Patrick Troughton, uh, Patrick Troughton's era. I lo- I, there's a good bit of comedy in this. I love the scene early on where they've just arrived at the base and everybody thinks they're scavengers and they sort of barge into the computer room and they're having a, a, a nuclear reactor crisis at the moment. And the people who are running the the reactor are spouting these numbers. And we have no context for what these numbers are. But it's like, this is up to 3.5, and that's down to 5.7. And the doctor is just repeating what people are saying in an alarmed tone of voice. And he has no, he has no context. Oh, my goodness, that's, that's horrible. It's up to 5.7. And and uh, and then he ends, and, and so he, that gets played for comedy. That's very amusing. And then he just instantly tells them what settings they need to resolve it. And they do. And mm-hmm. it's like, how did you do that without a computer? I don't need a computer. <laughs> so you have some charming Patrick Trout and stuff there. There's a funny scene, and it's in, uh, I think it's in episode three. It's definitely one of the two animated ones where he's doing a bunch of calculations now that he's been brought on board as a kind of replacement scientist since Penley's no longer there. And he's got all this, he's, he's like down on his hands and knees on the floor with all this crumpled paper down there that he's mm-hmm. been writing on and is rummaging around through. And he's even been writing on the floor itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's interacting with Clint and his, his first assistant lady who comes in and he gets them 
it's it, he's like, um, Leader Clint, this is very, very important. I need something from you urgently. What, doctor? Lend me a pencil. <laughs> and, and and then he's he's having uh, Clint explain the chemical dispenser machine with its rotary dial. Mm-hmm. And oh yes, uh, something I must make urgently. And he dials something up, and it it gives him a little beaker with a clear fluid in it, and he drinks it. And Clint says, "What is that? Water." <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was good. Then later, though, we have some significant drama. Now, one thing that Penley does at at the near the end when Penley has come back in the base is he has the smarts to say, "Hey, these ice warriors are designed to live in a freezing cold environment on Mars. Let's turn up the furnace on them." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and and he's doing it in un- at an unfortunate moment, but in principle, this should have been done a long time ago. Right. And and it's very logical. On the other hand, the doctor is is having fun with sonic technology. He he jailbreaks their the Ice Warriors big gun on their spaceship and reconfigures it so that it should, he thinks, have a bigger effect on the Ice Warriors than on the humans. But Victoria points out uh, he points out there is a small chance that it could just kill everybody. Mm-hmm. And and Victoria's like, including Jamie, huh? Yep. <laughs> and and so the doctor, even though he knows there's a chance that it could kill Jamie, and that's been pointed out to him, he goes ahead and pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. Right. And and while Jamie and all the humans survive, he was and they don't point this out, he was wrong about the effect it would have on the Ice Warriors. Because all the humans get knocked unconscious by the sonic beam. And the ice warriors are still up and around and willing to retreat. Mm-hmm. So it actually has less of an effect on the ice warriors than on the humans. Right. Yeah, the ice warriors recover quicker than the humans and, and, and bail out. I mean, it, it, it ultimately it worked out. But yeah, it wasn't what the doctor had hoped. Yeah. Yep. I, I did want to mention one thing about the, the, uh, the Scottish scavenger stores. Uh, there is an interesting turn where he... He's he's going to go to the Ice Warriors to oh yeah to, to switch sides. He's he from mm-hmm. his point of view, Clint and his people are the enemy, and so therefore the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But the Ice Warriors are like, nope, you're you're useless to us, and kill him, uh, you know, offhanded, like just no, mm-hmm. you're, you're you have no uh, utility to us. We don't need you. Bam, you're dead. And it's a very cold blooded sort of way for this character to die it's very interesting they threw that in there yeah because the mistake that he's making is just because they're not the ice warriors are not anti-science like store is Mm -hmm. they're dependent on science they're just anti those scientists over there (laughs) right right Right. I think I've. Uh, I think I might be Facebook friends with stores, but uh, well, that's a whole other. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other good conversation. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so on that note, uh, if there's uh, if there's no other points, I, I we could wrap things up. And uh, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Mark R, Ronald B, Corey L, Armand P, and Teresa C. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. 
So that's it from us. So what do you think of this second Doctor story, The Ice Warriors? If you get a chance to to watch it or to listen to the audio, let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time where we'll be discussing the 11th Doctor story, The Wedding of River Song, and wrapping up that season of the 11th Doctor story. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me in sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember... My world is up here in my brain, private and no admittance. Right. This is going to be fun.